The National Archives podcast series, The Cruel Victory, presented by Paddy Ashdown. This talk was recorded live on the 4th of November 2014 at the National Archives Q. I mean, my passion is the SOE, those wartime years and these extraordinary stories of the SOE. It seemed to me that these quintessentially bring together the great human qualities of sacrifice and heroism, as well as some of the really nasty ones of betrayal and uh, cruelty. And so it is an eternal fascination for me, but that fascination would be meagre, thin and impoverished were it not for the tremendous records in this place and the tremendous people. Neil Cobbett sitting at the back there is the expert on the SOE and he helps me a very, very great deal. I pay tribute to the staff here and to this extraordinary institution. This book, why did I write it? I think for three reasons, really. One is that when I was a diplomat in Geneva in the 1970s, I walked on the Vercors and began to hear its legends and its stories. Secondly, because I'm fascinated by those stories which are about people at the top not understanding war and making decisions that cause people at the bottom to suffer terribly and in large measure lose their lives. It was a feature of nearly all wars and we're not immune from it now, as we all know. And the third was because it was the 70th anniversary of D-Day and this is the hidden story of D-Day. It's the story that you know, everybody knows what happened to almost every soldier crossing the beach in Normandy, nobody knows the sacrifice that was made across France by young men who rose when they were told to on the night of D-Day against the Germans, knowing, as Eisenhower did, that they would be exposed, that they would be killed. He believed that um, he had to convince the Germans that it was, there was going to be a simultaneous landing in the south and that, that required, and that required convincing them to hold their divisions in the south, which would otherwise have gone to Normandy. And this is one of those stories, arguably the greatest of them. Well, the book is dedicated to the boy in the white shirt, and I want to explain to you why. And I'll do so, if I may, by reading briefly from the prologue to the book. And I hope when I've read it, you'll understand who the boy in the white shirt is. Above the city of Grenoble at Saint-Nizier-du-Moucherot, the sun rose into a perfect sky at 0448 on the morning of the 13th of June, 1944. For the 700 young men who had spent the previous night under the summer stars, strung out along a three-kilometre defensive line on the Chave Ridge, it brought a welcome warmth against the damp early morning chill. Bees, bees hummed amongst the flowers and grasses, and everywhere little birds darted from clump to bush, seeking out insects. High above, the early lark let down her string of liquid notes, and below them, the Gressivaudin Valley, bounded by the Chartreuse Massif on one side and the Beaujean Oison Ranges on the other, glowed with the colours of high summer. And in the distance, like a great white whale, the snow-covered humpback of Mont Blanc sparkled in the sunlight. In normal times, this would have been a good day for lovers and country walks and family picnics. But this was not a normal time, and this would not be a normal day. Modern-day soldiers almost always fight and die miles from home. But these young men, many little more than boys, looked down that morning to see their home city laid out as plain as a street map. They knew its every nook and cranny. There was the park where they had played football with friends. There the school they had attended. There the square in which they had hung around, watching the girls go by. There the cafe where they had met a lover. And there the rented flat where wives and children still slept this summer morning as they lay out in the dew-soaked grass, waiting for the enemy to come. Whatever politicians say, soldiers do not die for their country. 
They die mostly for the man next to them. The comrade they will know, they know will lay down his life for them, and for whom they too will lay down theirs in their turn, if required to do so. But most of these young Mackies are lying out this warm summer's morning on the Charvet Hill in the same clothes, even the same white shirts, in which they had left home only days previously, were different. Young, naive, unpractised in the use of arms, inexperienced in the terrors of war, they had come to the plateau out of a genuine sense of patriotism mixed with romance and adventure. Their useful enthusiasm remained undimmed by the dull, mind-numbing routines of the professional soldier. How were they to know that their proudly acquired Sten guns would be little more than pop guns against the steel-clad might and majesty of the world's finest army, now massing invisibly below them? How were they to know, plucked so suddenly out of comfortable city lives, what it would be like to watch a friend cough out his life's blood on the grass next to them? These things were literally beyond their imaginings. And so, in ways unknown to the common soldier, they lay there waiting for their enemy, apprehensively, of course, but in their innocence also proudly, bravely, determinedly, ready to carry out what they believed was a glorious duty on behalf of their long-oppressed country. It's the morning of Austerlitz, one declared, referring to Napoleon's great victory over the Austrians in 1805. Suddenly, there was a new noise punctuating the early morning hum of the city, drifting up to them on a light summer breeze. It was the insistent thump, thump of a heavy German machine gun somewhere in the woods and meadows below them. Little flowers of dirt started sprouting up amongst them in the long grass where they lay. Looking to the foot of the hill, they could make out tiny dots of field grey spreading out as they started to move slowly up towards them. They're coming, someone shouted. The book I've written has plenty of characters in it, as a book should. There's Roosevelt, there's de Gaulle, there's Churchill. There's some rather silly generals, frankly. There's some very brave young men and some not-so-brave young men. There are some remarkable women. There is the greatest SOE agent in France in the Second World War, arguably the greatest SOE agent we ever dropped in to occupied territory. There is a fabulously beautiful Polish countess who was a British spy. All of these I will introduce to you later on. But... One of the characters I decided when I began to write this story and began to visit the incredibly beautiful plateau of the Vercors was the plateau itself. Surrounded on all sides by 3,000-foot vertical cliffs, it forms a natural fortress. Up there in the winter, especially on those bright cold days when the cold sucks the fog down into the valley, all is sparkling snow and around you the gleaming turreted peaks of the Alps. In 1930s, as today, a ski centre, one of the first ski alpine centres ever in France, was opened up on the Vercors Plateau at Villard de Lens. And in the summer, in 1930s, as today, incredibly beautiful Alp high alpine valleys and forests, which were a home for hiking and the scouting uh, imported from Baden-Powell in Britain, took root in France up on the Vercors Plateau. But its reputation is somewhat different than a glorious uh, place for leisure. Surrounded on all sides by these cliffs, it was one of the poorest areas of, Euro of, of Europe. Until, in the 18th century, the roads were blasted up, the almost vertical cliffs. They are astonishing roads to drive up, by the way. 
But even, in, even then, and certainly before then, in the 17th century, this was a place of refuge. It was a place where you went to avoid religious persecution, tyranny, the law. The French equivalent of, of uh, Robin Hood had his uh, base up on the Vercors Plateau. It's described by an Anglo-Saxon, rather prosaic Anglo-Saxon, who features briefly in our story, as like a, an arrowhead steaming north towards the English Channel. Its strategic position depends on the fact that it lies covering two of the great communications corridors of this area of France. This is the Rhone flying up, flowing up here through Valence. Up here, the Romans marched, ignoring the Vercors. It was a cold and inhospitable plateau above them. Down here, the Vikings came on their longships, having them covered and carried them over the hump to the Rhone on their voyage of expedition and conquest. And following them a few centuries later, the Burgundian armies and their march towards pillage and blood. And then in 1805, Napoleon, who landed, of course, from Elba in the south of France, marched up the route Napoleon, which runs up here, to Grenoble, to Paris, and to his nemesis at Waterloo. And it was that which really formed the importance, the strategic importance of the Vercors Plateau. It sat right astride those two cru cru crucial communication routes. By the way, it's often thought that the French armies were all defeated at the fall of France. No, they weren't. The Army des Alpes, based in Grenoble, uh, held their high alpine passes against vastly superior Italian forces and stopped the German advance here at the Battle of Voreppe which was won by, they were never defeated, the, the Army des Alpes. They beat back the German advance on the day before the armistice was signed at the Battle of Voreppe, destroying German tanks by artillery placed on the peak of the Vercors itself. They were not defeated by the Germans. They were defeated as they saw it and shamed by the armistice. And they were forced to retreat to Grenoble as part of the armistice army and were burning for a return fight. And so it was hardly surprising that when... In due course, after the fall of France, the armistice was signed, and France was divided in two by the demarcation line. This marks the occupied zone, and here the zone non-occupé, non or the Vichy. And the Vercors lies just there, well placed in the southern zone. And so it was, ladies and gentlemen, that after Operation Barbarossa and Hitler's invasion of Russia, when people began to think about the possibility of resistance and of liberation, the Vercors was a place where they began to think about. And so it was that in the early spring, on a bright March, blowy March day of 1942, two men, both intellectuals, both writers, both alpinists, met at a villa called La Grande Vigne under the northern cliffs of the Vercors. They were cutting down a walnut tree. And they were Pierre Dalloz, who owned La Grande Vigne, he was an alpinist and a writer. He was in the process of writing a treatise on St. Bernard at the time. He has many alpine firsts still to his credit. And his good friend Jean Prévost, this startlingly handsome man, one of the greatest young writers in France, regarded as being the great writer, along with Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the great writer of uh, one of the two great young writers in France. And it was Prévost who looked up at the cliffs and said, one day, you know, when liberation comes, that place could be used as a fortress, as a place where the Mackies are, the resistance could hide, and where the Allies could parachute troops behind German lines to block off those two crucial communications routes. Two or three weeks later, four or five weeks later, these five men also met quite different, and they didn't know each other in any way, had no contact with each other. These are not intellectuals, they're all socialists. 
<coughs> there's one ex-mayor of Grenoble here, one ex-mayor of the one of the suburbs of Grenoble, and they met in the Café de la Rotonde behind um, Grenoble, station, Grenoble Station in the working class district. And they began to discuss whether or not it was time to launch a resistance movement, not to fight the Germans at this stage, but to deliver political tracts. And by the way, about three weeks later, a similar group, also socialists, met up on the plateau. And from Easter 1942, the two had combined into a single group. And then on the 11th of November 1942, after the Allies had invaded the South, uh, invaded North Africa in Operation Torch, and the Germans suddenly realized that they were vulnerable not just from the north across the Channel, but also from the south, from North Africa, across the Mediterranean, the Germans invaded the zone non occupé disbanded the Armistice Army, and all many of those officers, together with many of their units, fully formed, <coughs> also fled up onto the Vercor Plateau, taking with them, in some cases, their mess decorations, their mess silver, and their mess customs. Now the Vercor was home to a pretty odd uh, polyglot collection. Intellectuals, left-wingers, right-wing army officers, wanting to see in the new France created after the war in the image of the old with its institutions and especially its army intact. And this was added to at the end of 1943, when the Germans and the Vichy government reached a, um, an agreement that in order to provide labor for German factories, um, a conscription would be established by all, which covered all young men from 18 to 27, and many women too. It was called the Service du Travail Obligatoire, and it required them all to turn up to the local railway station, be shipped to, France, to Germany to man the German factories. And, of course, most of them didn't want to go, and most of them fled up onto the plateau. They were originally established up on the plateau, these young men. They weren't patriots. They weren't fighters. They were just people wanting not to go to Germany on the rail transports. And they were established to start with in out-of-the-way isolated farms like this one. This is called the Ferme d'Ambel. And this was set up in deep snow over the winter and new year of 1942-43 when 15 to 20 young men, many of them chemino, many of them railway workers, um, came into, the, into this, is called the Ferme d'Ambel, and so was established the first, many claim it was the first Mackie in France, the Mackie de, de, of the Ferme d'Ambel. And then more started coming up, and they had to be fed, and they had to be supplied, and they had to be protected, and the local population did a lot of that. And London suddenly realized that they now had a, a well of potential recruits to form the resistance, and they parachuted in large sums of money, and local collections were made to sustain the camps of the young men up on the plateau. And as spring turned to summer, it was actually rather fun in the summer of 1943. Le scouting all over again up in the high mountain huts. However, of course, it was uh, very soon when people realized that these young men, not in any sense military uh, and not in any sense political, could nevertheless be turned into a rough guerrilla army. And so the army units up on the plateau formed flying squads, a keep volant, that visited these camps and began to train them in the use of weapons. <coughs> Notice the age of this man. This young boy, 15, 16, 17, I suppose, being taught how to use a Lee Enfield, British Lee Enfield number four rifle. The teams were set up to provide military training. The curriculum included instruction in basic military skills, training exercise, weapon handling, physical exercises, map reading, camp discipline, hygiene, political studies. And in the evenings, there were boisterous games and the singing of patriotic songs around the campfire. A small 
booklet was even produced on how to be a resistance fighter. There was even some rather less conventional training given by one of the Vercors' most unusual and remarkable characters. Fabien Rey was famous on the plateau before the war as a poacher, a frequenter of the shadowy spaces beyond the law, an initiate into the mysteries of the Vercors' forests and its hidden caves, and an intimate of the secret lives of all its creatures. During the summer and autumn months of 1943, when not striding from camp to camp to share his knowledge with the young men from the cities, his latest crap of trapped foxes swinging from his belt, he could always be found sitting in his cabin, invigilating a bubbling stew of strange delicacies, such as the intestines of wild boars and the feathered heads of eagles, which he would press on any unwary visitor who passed. He too wrote a small cyclostyle's handbook on how to live off the land on the plateau, and it too was eagerly distri- widely distributed and eagerly read. <clears throat> At this time, Bordeaux and the plateau, the Vercors plateau, lay within the um, area of uh, occupied France, which was looked after by the Italians. Uh, their job it was to keep order on the plateau and to find and destroy the Maquisar camps. And, but they did it in a, in a rather typical sort of Italian way without any particular enthusiasm for the task. And basically most of the summer was spent with the local population warning of them of an Italian raiding party and the Maquisar scampering away into the mountains and the Italians returning empty-handed. And during this period, it was the local population who largely protected them. Here's the story of one of those encounters. Meme Borda kept a bar, cafe, rest house for the refreshment of travellers crossing the Col de Rousse, the southern end of the plateau. One day, hot on the a fugitive Mackie troop, came a band of Italian Alpini, led by an Italian officer, who demanded to know where the Mackie were. Meme Borda denied any knowledge of the Mackie. Indeed, she wanted to know what exactly were these mythical creatures, the Mackie, for she had never seen them. The Italian officer replied that they were the young men who lived in the mountains. Again, Meme Borda professed ignorance. Again, the Italian officer returned to the charge, demanding in more insistent terms to know where the fugitives were. Finally, the good Meme Borda lifted her skirt, pulled down her knickers, and pointing to her bottom, told the officer that if he really wished to know where the young men were, no doubt he could find them up there. (laughs) The officer left red-faced, taking the Alpini with him. The Germans were not going to be the same when in due course the Italian armistice was signed and they took over. Strangely enough, there was a film crew operating at this time. There was a film crew operating at this time up on the Vercor Plateau. In order to show you what, was, what it was like, I want to show you a small piece of film that I found. Of course, there are huge flocks of sheep up there. Hope you can see that clearly enough, 1,500, 2,000 of them. The fact that sheep were mixed with hungry young men in the same proximity meant that there were certain losses that were beyond the natural ones that the shepherds had to put up with. Here is the young Mackizar emerging as they would have appeared at that time in the front there, a young man with a Sten gun. Uh, I think that man's in an American uniform, the ubiquitous British Bren gun there. Here's one of the high mountain huts in which they lived. And it gives a pretty good picture of what the summer and autumn of 1943 was like. That's a Bren gun being taken apart there. So by the autumn of 1943, a rough guerrilla army was emerging 
on the plateau itself. What they didn't have was arms. And that all changed on the night of the 11th of November 1943, when the plateau, listening as they always did to the BBC French service, heard what they never thought they would hear. Amongst the message personnel was the phrase, nous irons à Marrakech. We are off to Marrakech. We are going to Marrakech. It was the signal to say that there would be a drop of arms on the Vercors plateau that night by um, Lancaster bombers flying down from Tempsford Airfield, not far north of London. And this is where they were dropped onto the Darbanous Plateau. André Vallo, well, in, re in writing this book, not only have I used hugely the resources here, but also I've read about 65 or 70 books in French with, my, with some assistance from friends. Um, and uh, many of those individual accounts of the Maquisards, some of them published, some of them not. This was written by André Vallo. He was the commander of the Ferme d'Ambelle that you saw earlier on. And he, along with the rest of the plateau, flooded up to the Darbanous plateau that night. And this is the high mountain pasture of Darbanous. You can see in the background here the peaks that run around the Vercors eastern rim. And this is what happened that night. By midnight, all was ready, and there was nothing to do but wait. The moon slowly slipped towards the horizon, threatening to leave us alone under a silent and empty sky. And then, suddenly, borne on the wind, there was a sound like a far-off whispering, almost nothing, no more than the rustle which leaves make in a breeze. But quickly it became constant, heavier somehow, with a kind of strong underlying beat. Soon we could tell where it came from, the northwest. It was them. It was undoubtedly them. The commander pulled out a large electric torch, pointing it in the direction of the noise. He started to flash a series of dots and dashes in Morse code. Suddenly, there, up there, a new star suddenly appeared and flashed back the same sequence at us. They had seen us. Light the fires. Immediately, a lance of flame, fanned almost flat by the wind, leapt out of the darkness nearby. Then another, and another, and another, until a vast letter T was picked out in flames around us, four bonfires long and three across. Above us, we heard the still invisible aircraft from England turning and turning, as though enclosing us in a wide circle of noise, holding us in an embrace of friendship, we suddenly felt, wonderfully, that we were not alone. And then the miracle happened. One of the aircraft burst out of the darkness above us, following the line of the long stroke of the T, and beneath it, a great white flower blossomed against the darkness of the sky. It did not appear to us as something falling, but rather as something sprouting out of nothing as though it was the product of magic, conjured into existence by the black shake above and the noise that it made. And then there was another, and another aircraft, and another. The wind made all the parachutes beneath them dance as though in some fantastical aerial ballet. The spectacle was one of utterly intoxicating, utterly astonishing beauty. Now we could see the round circles of the parachutes jostling each other for position, Below, each one swung a long, black, cylindrical shape. We thought they were, first they were men. Then a dull, heavy thud, then two, then three, then four, five, six, ten, twenty, thirty, repeated and repeated and repeated. The white flowers now lay deflated, exhausted, dead and lifeless on the ground around us. The miraculous cargo from England had arrived. In the end, however, the arms, the explosive, the equipment, they were all magnificent. Our nocturnal visitors brought us an even more special gift. They brought us back our confidence. 
our enthusiasm, the sure knowledge that we were, after all, not all, we were, after, we were, after all, not isolated, abandoned, and alone. What happened next was winter, and the winter of 1942-43 was bitter. Started early, finished late, deep, deep snow, much deeper than people could, on the plateau could remember in recent years. And there was nothing to do but the young Makisar but sit in their high, isolated mountain huts with the snow swirling around outside them, getting on each other's nerves. And many left. Many went down for the temptations of home and Christmas in the valley being um, impossible to resist. About half of them left the, the plateau. But in the spring, more came up, and more, and more. So there were about 2,000, maybe 2,500 by May and June. And then, on the night of the 5th of June... The BBC French service in, um, in London broadcast 187 coded messages to Makizar groups, to resistance groups around the whole of France. They were all different. The one for the Vercor was the Iliade l'eau dans le gaz. There was wa- water in the gas. Elsewhere, there was Imefitroi du Toréador, Les Carottes sont cuites. They were all different, but they all meant the same thing. Tomorrow is D-Day. The hour of your liberation has arrived. Rise and fight. Around the plateau at this stage, as well as the two or three, the 2,000 or so Makizar on the plateau, around there were some hidden Makizar. There were Makizar living still within their own communities, working, continuing to work at the shoe factories and their other daily work, and in the uh, weekends going to train secretly in the forests. It was their time to rise, and this is what happened that night of D-Day. For René Piron, in the town of Romont, just below the western wall of the Vercors Plateau, the night of D-Day was not a quiet one. It was midnight. A violent banging on my door made me wake with a start. I had no weapons in the house. I feared it was the Bosch, and I was scared stiff. But I had no choice. I opened the door and let out a sigh of relief. It was our Lieutenant Genot, dressed in hiking clothes and standing, ironically, to attention. He told me, still half asleep, that the Allies would be landing at dawn this morning on the beaches of Normandy and that, as planned, the sabotage of the railway system in the Romont area had to be executed immediately. He had to repeat the message to me twice before I got it. It took my breath away. I can see their faces now, my comrades, on the morning of the 6th of June, standing together in the darkness on the terrace in front of my house, waiting for the truck, took their weapons out, from the hiding places, assembled them and cleaned them for action, for all the world as though we were experienced soldiers. I can see their faces, serious and determined, no bravado, just the cold resolution a man feels when he must leave behind all that he loves, all that he lives for, his wife, his children, his possessions, all to be reduced to no more than dear memories held in the heart. And so it was all over France. That night, as Allied landing craft were using the final hours of darkness to manoeuvre into position for their dawn run-in to the Normandy beaches, French men and some women were slipping quietly through darkened streets to knock on neighbours' doors and tell them the hour had come. Worried wives were saying goodbye to husbands they might never see again. And young men, and some not so young, were pulling on boots and hitching up rucksacks before quietly closing their front doors behind them and vanishing into the darkness. Of course, the Germans who now occupied Grenoble knew perfectly well what was happening. The 157th Reserve Division, based in Grenoble, 
below the plateau. That's the actual plateau there behind this Gebirgsjäger. Training division, not an operational decision, but pretty military competent, militarily competent nevertheless, especially the Alpine units, the Bavarian Alpine units, the Gebirgsjäger. The order came that day to begin to plan to destroy the Mackie units on the Verkhoff plateau. And the German operation began on the 16th of June with the attack. This is Grenoble town here. This is San Nizier. That was the bit I read out at the beginning when we started. The Germans mount three attacks to, before they can break the German lines and have to bring in heavy artillery and some armoured units to break the French lines holding the Chave Ridge. Now the Verkhoff commanders abandon the northern half of the plateau. They retreat to the southern half, shorter defensive lines, still protected on all sides by cliffs and deep gorges. And now we wait for what everybody knows is coming next. And over the next few weeks, there are appeals for the parachute troops that have been promised by de Gaulle, 4,000 parachute troops that were promised by de Gaulle. They didn't come, but a whole series of Allied agents did. And here are some of them. This man here is Francis Kamerz, arguably, in my view, the greatest SOE agent dropped into France and possibly in any occupied country. He was 26 years old. He controlled by the end by D-Day 1944 the entire resistance units right the way from the Vercors Plateau and Grenoble down to the sea at Marseille. He was highly respected and regarded and loved indeed by Wizendone Mackizar commanders. Uh, and he held them all in the palm of his hand. And he was up on the Vercors at that time. This man here, by the way, he ended as a as a head the, the head of Royal College in Exmouth. Um, remarkable man. This one here who looks like a school teacher was um, he goes under the name of Henry Thackthwaite, great name for a school teacher, you may imagine. He's parachuted in in the very first days of 1944 into the snow um, as part of the Union mission to assess the strength of the resistance units on the Verkhoff. And along with him goes this man, whose name is Peter Ortiz, ex-US Marine Corps, ex-French Foreign Legion, <laughs> larger-than-life character. He's parachuted in um, together with his cigars and his whiskey bottle. And it's the first of two operations he carries out in France. He is captured on the second one, sent off to um, German camp, prisoner of war camp, doesn't lose his life, is liberated by the Russians, returns to, returns to California. He's a good friend of John Wayne's and can be seen as an extra in early John Wayne pres uh, films quite frequently as an Indian, you'll spot it. I don't quite know why these two went in there at all. They're the eucalyptus mission sent in by SOE. I think there were a couple of English SOE officers. I thought, we don't want to miss the excitement. Hey, we're just parachuting to France and persuaded SOE to drop them in. One of them, um, they were Desmond Long and John Hausman. Hausman, who's this man here, um, led the eucalyptus mission. He at least could speak some pretty rudimentary French. Desmond Long could speak none. Um, and, uh, in fact, if you look at the SOE um, form filled in by Desmond Long, which is in the National Archives here, you'll find that when asked the, que the, uh, asked the question about joining SOE, what part of the world do you know best? He, he answers with what you may think is disarming honesty, the home counties. He, they parachute in. Frankly, they get in the way, mostly. Um, and then they, are, they, they desert the plateau. They, they leave the plateau under very questionable circumstances. And there's an SOE inquiry into it afterwards. I'm desperately in love with this lady here. Her name is Christina the Countess Scarbeck. She is known as Christine Granville at this stage. She was an SOE, she was an MI6 agent before the war, smuggled British soldiers across the frozen, she's a Polish countess, smuggled British soldiers across the um, deep snow in dead of winter of the Tatra Mountains and got them through when most others froze to death. 
She escapes by the skin of her teeth. She is the first person to bring back the microfilm showing the Polish, the German forces gathering in the valleys in Poland for Operation Barbarossa. Incredibly beautiful, incredibly courageous, and with a love life to match. Um, she escapes by the skin of her teeth. She gets to Cairo. She makes it to Algiers, which is where the southern operation of SOE was based. They tell her she's far too rash to be parachuted into France. And she's furious, and she solves her problem when the SOE refusing her to go into France by taking the local head of the SOE off into the sand dunes. Um, and, and, and when he returns, his knees are said to be knocking, and he says she must be sent to France immediately. Um, so she's parachuted into France, um, and um, the French go a bit goggle-eyed at this beauty falling out of a moonlit sky. Um, on the very first night they meet, um, she makes love with uh, Francis Camerts. They become lovers in a burning hotel, being strafed by not one but two Messerschmitt 109s at the same time, which shows, you may think, a certain dedication to the task, which is admiral. Um, if you think about it carefully, probably more for him than her, but there we are, we'll pass that over. Uh, the two of them escape from the plateau, um, before the Germans encircle it. Francis Kametz is captured. He, blund he blunders into a German roadblock. Um, she hears about it. The one thing her SOE training form says that she couldn't... The only thing she couldn't do in SOE was ride a bicycle. Well, it didn't apply that day. She hopped on the bike, rode 40 kilometres over the mountains to Digne, um, pedaled down into the city, or the town of Digne, walked into the Gestapo officer's office, who was about to shoot her lover the next morning, along with a couple of others, and says, you know the bloke you've got going to shoot tomorrow morning? Um, well, he's the bloke you've been looking for this last four years. And by the way, I'm his courier. Um, so you've got a choice. Would you like to shoot both of us? Or would you like a million francs? And the Gestapo officer says, well, I'll have the million francs then if it's okay by you. So she jumps on her bike. She pedals up to the top of the mountain. She taps out a message to London. Please drop me a million francs. They do. Uh, she sticks it on the back of her bicycle. She cycles down to Dean the following morning, hands it over to the Gestapo officer and walks out uh, with her lover under the guns of the firing squad. Extraordinary woman. She was murdered after the war by the, in 1953 by the porter of the Reform Club in London who was obsessed by her and one can imagine why. A remarkable woman. Very good book written about her called Spy Who Loved by Christian, Christine Mully who helped me a bit with, uh, with this book. They also dropped in this man, uh, Jean, Jean Tournissart, a Frenchman um, who is... Um, uh, ordered to go in and build a landing strip upon which Dakotas will land, probably on the first night of the August moon, which is the 24th, or the July moon, which is the 24th of July. Hold that date in your head. Um, he's sent in by Jacques Soustel, de Gaulle's um, second in command, to build this strip so the Dakotas can come in, bring Allied troops in, bring in heavy weapons. The Americans also parachute 15 American commandos in. They're called Operation Justine. They bring with them the new weapon, the bazooka, and show the Bakizar how to use it. Uh, and they conduct um, a couple of very successful ambushes on German troops moving around the valley, or moving around the plateau itself. But no sign of the French paratroopers that had been promised by de Gaulle. On the 26th of June, <coughs> a ceremony is held in Saint-Martin-en-Vercourt, in which the first officially-based free republic in France is declared on the Vercourt Plateau. There's even talk of de Gaulle flying in to establish the Fifth Republic on the plateau. People rush around trying to look for a house for him. Um, on the 14 juillet, the French Bastille Day, French National Day, 90, 72 flying fortresses make the largest single daytime drop 
of arms, 92 tons of arms, onto the plateau. At this time, the Germans are waiting. And they're no longer vanished over the horizon than um, the Germans begin a furious air assault on the little town of Vassieux, bombing and um, strafing it and reducing it to rubble. Now everybody knows what's happening next. Now the next month, the next uh, week, is spent in pitiful emails flying backwards and forwards. Send us the paratroops you promised. Send us heavy weapons that you promised. But nothing further arrives. And this is what happens on the 21st of July, 1944. Jean Tunisar mopped his brow and packed up his theodolite. It had been a good night's work, another 24 hours or so, and the strip would be completed. There was even talk of a grand parade attended by all the Vercors' dignitary to mark the end of their labours and the opening of the little airfield. Tunisar looked towards the rim of the mountains marking the eastern ramparts of the Vercors and watched for a few minutes as they became etched in darker relief against the red glow of an angry dawn. At least the rain had stopped. Looking at his watch, he noted it was a little before 0500. In an hour or so, it would be fully light, and the German fighters would be back. Sure enough, and right on time, a few moments later, the first German observation plane of the day came skimming over a low ridge and let loose several bursts of machine gun fire, sending most of Tournisau's men scurrying back to the cover of Vassieux. Among those running back to the relative safety of their quarters in a barn in Vassieux was Kazimierz Seibenechen, a Polish student and refugee. He remembered our work on the strip was nearly finished and our bosses had told us that soon we would be able to play our part in defeating the enemy with arms rather than shovels. As dawn turned to morning, Vassier settled down to another day of German bombing and strafing. In the barns, shelters and houses of the village, the night workers made themselves as comfortable as they could and hoped for a good day's sleep. Someone commented that the German fighters were later than usual that day. Then, shortly before 0900, they heard the low rumble of approaching aircraft to the south, not the high-pitched whine of fighters, something very different. A few rushed out onto the streets to see a line of distant black dots emerging from the cloud base and descending towards them over the Boudinev on the Vercors' southern rim. They were coming from the same direction as the American bombers, which had dropped all those arms on the 14th of July. Someone shouted, Les Amerlots, les Amerlots, slang for the Americans. But Maquis units in the Drome forest south of the Vercors knew that these were not the Americans. Twenty minutes earlier, at 0900, they had seen a large number of Dornier bombers lumbering over, their noses tilting awkwardly skywards to counter the drag of the glider each towed behind them. Not having direct contact with the Vercors, an immediate message was sent to Algiers to warn the plateau of the approaching armada. There, it joined a queue of signals and was not decoded until two days later. Friedrich Schaefer had assembled his men beside their salt gliders on the tarmac at Lyon-Bron airport as a misty dawn broke that morning. His final orders were brief and brutal. One of his men was later to describe them. Hit hard and fast, don't wait to find out who's who. He who hesitates is lost. They would be outnumbered, he explained, so they must shoot on sight and without discriminating between civilians and combatants. The only way to win was speed, shock, and total ruthlessness. Jersey Dellinger, 
another Pole, was in the middle of peeling potatoes for lunch when he heard the noise of the approaching armada and knew it for what it was. He remembered the sound of Dornier bombers flying over his parents' house in Lyon. It's not the Americans, he shouted to his friends. It's the Germans. Soon, black winds on gr- black crosses on glinting wings became visible, sending many scurrying for cover, and those who had them, the Polish students, were unarmed for their weapons. But some just watched, stunned and mesmerized, as at a height of 2,500 meters and 10 kilometers out from their targets, the first nine gliders detached from their parent craft and headed straight for Vassieux. Soon, they were over the village itself. At a height of 300 metres, small, circular, khaki-coloured brake parachutes flowered from their tails, and then, very close to the ground now, they levelled out, fired retro rockets from their noses like snorting fiery dragons, and landed with astonishing precision in just a handful of metres. Even before the gliders had bumped to a halt, their occupants were out firing and running for the nearest shelter while their pilots gave them covering fire from the machine guns mounted on the aircraft roofs. By now the defenders' stunned surprise had turned to furious action. French machine guns opened up and two gliders were hit, crashing and killing their pilots and seven of Schaefer's men, including the unit medical officer. But the Germans had the momentum and heavy air support. Now the air was full of Focke-Wulf 190 fighter bombers roaring overhead, providing close support to Schaefer's furious assault. In a storm of grenades and automatic fire, the German troops soon had full command of the village. It was the start of a four-pronged simultaneous assault. Schaefer from the south here in his gliders, an armoured column that moved round with tanks and armoured cars, light tanks and armoured cars, to break through on the Col de Russe. Another armoured column moving forward from Saint-Nizier, which had been captured earlier, um, again backed up by armour and, and alpine troops from the north. And the Gebirgsjäger, the alpine troops, scaled the, the, the eastern uh, ramparts of the Wehrkorps, captured the passes, which are held with probably only 10 Mackie on most, in most cases. What followed was four days of furious fighting on the plateau. But of course, it was a foregone conclusion. 4,000, perhaps, Mackizar lightly armed with Sten guns against 13, maybe 14,000 Germans fully armed um, with main battle units, tanks and heavy artillery. There was no doubt what the outcome was going to be. And on the 24th of July, the French commander, Francois Huet, ordered his forces forces to disperse into the forests of the Vercors. What followed was massacre on a grand scale. 600 young Mackizar caught and shot in the German cordon as they tried to flee the plateau. 200 civilians. The Germans brought in for the first time in Western Europe, the only time really, what they called the Ostruppen, the Azerbaijanis, Tajiks um, and Ukrainians, which they had trained to a use on the Eastern Front, especially in the most revolting and sadistic forms of killing people. And um, many of them committed appalling atrocities there, which formed part of the French case in, um, in the Nuremberg trials that were to follow. So a terrible defeat. Well, extraordinarily not. What Uet did, and maybe he should have done it earlier, maybe trying to hold fixed defensive positions against the German army was folly. I would certainly regard it so. But what he did, extraordinarily, was hold his units together in the forest. The Germans tried to hunt them, tried to fo- but wouldn't follow them into the forest to fear of ambush. But they led three weeks of desperate survival against um, hunting parties of Germans. 
and yet he kept his units together. There were weeks of terrible privation, no food, fed with great risk, usually by the women of the Vercor communities. And they held together as military units, crucially no water, because this is a limestone plateau, and all the water seeks away, there's very little surface water. They must have been terrible weeks. But then finally, on the 15th of August, the Allies finally land on the south coast uh, of the Rhone, this is the Bouche du Rhone, and storm up the Route Napoleon and the Rhone Valley, driving the Germans before them. And at this stage, just before they land, almost coincidental with their landing, um, Ouet is able to military gather his forces again and drive the Germans off the plateau with considerable losses and act as they were, had originally planned they would act by laying ambush to the fleeing German troops uh, moving up the Rhone Valley and causing a very large number of German casualties. And so it was that when Grenoble was finally liberated, it was the Maquisar of the Vercors who led the liberation parade in Grenoble. This is a man called, uh, he's just died actually, this bloke, uh, Robert Ben. Um, who did one of the most extraordinary escapes from the Germans. And there he is marching through, leading his Maquisar um, in the liberation of Bordeaux. So, at the end of the book, as you ought to, I uh, sum up about who are the villains and who are the heroes. Of course, the villains there are plenty, But these are, in my view, the most significant of the heroes. So what of the young Maquisar themselves? I'm astonished at the raw courage of the vast majority of these young, inexperienced, often inadequately led, underarmed, and massively outnumbered fighters. It was they who enabled the French. It was them who, when all was lost, it was their stalwart, stalwart endurance during the days of refuge and privation in the forests, which denied the Germans the success they most sought. The, disgust, the destruction of the resistance units on the plateau. In the end, it was they who enabled the French to return to the offensive in a way which turned what seemed unavoidable defeat into a final, if bitter, victory. If there are heroes in the story, they can be found amongst these extraordinary young men, some of whom had lived a hunted life for two hard years, winter and summer on the plateau, while others went to war still in the clothes they left home in, only days, in some cases hours previously. Not all of them were brave. Not all of them died well. Not all of them acted as they should have done. How could we expect otherwise, given their motley backgrounds and how unready they were for the terrible trials they had to face? But those who understand the terrors of war will find it extraordinary that so many of these young men were ready when the moment came to stand up and take on, face to face, the gathered might of the German army in what they genuinely believed was the glorious cause of the liberation of their country. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>